Hey everyone, welcome back to Trader Chats. I'm Imran Larka from Options Insight and today is a good one. I've got Jem Carson, uh, also known as Jam Croissant, also known as the Vanna Charmer on Twitter. Um, but he's basically all over the options market and has been for many years. Um, I finally got him here today uh, down to you know popular requests from a lot of our fans uh, to have this conversation, which you're all going to be able to see on YouTube for free. Um, so with that, Jem, great to have you here, man. How's it going? Wonderful being here. Uh, yeah, our last conversation on Real Vision was, uh, I think, a, a, a real, uh, real gem. And uh, I think, you know, you're one of the few that really get the big picture. So kudos to you. And it's just really, I think, I think you're going to really enjoy this one. Appreciate it, man. Yeah. So why don't we start off for the the few people who might not know you that well. Um how you know what's your background? How did you get into options trading? Uh, give us a little bit of color there, and we, and we can go from there. Yeah, the quick and dirty is I've uh, been in uh, the vol world for twenty four years now. Um, dating myself, uh, hard to imagine. Um, started in actually ninety eight, so almost twenty five years. Um, came out to the floor uh, here in Chicago, the Chicago Board Options Exchange CME as well, uh, and started trading vol before the tech bubble burst, um, had built um, a big market-making group uh, during the great financial crisis, became one of the biggest market makers on and off the trading floor. Um, uh, we were 13% of the volume of the S&P 500 options, as well as uh, most equity vol. We were, were one of the biggest, toe-to-toe with Susquehanna, Citadel, whatnot. Uh, left that business in 2010, and then started my own family office, and eventually, uh, the strategies we developed in-house in the family office using a lot of that, the market-making infrastructure and other things um, uh, led to Kai Volatility, which is our, our fund uh, asset management firm. Um, and we we currently manage a bunch of uh, alternative investments for institutions and individuals uh, and family offices. Okay. And uh, and so your fund is more of a volab fund, is it? Or it's not like a terrorist fund, or does it have terrorist components? We have four funds. So four hedge funds. Uh, one is a long vol fund and is a, is a, a hedge to equity exposure. Right. Um, not explicitly a tail fund, but it is convex and, and long mm-hmm. volatility. Uh, uh, two are absolute return. One is a relative value vol arm fund. Uh, the other is a what we call our dealer flow fund. That's really looking at the positioning and positioning net uh, to the market, both in terms of all direction as well as market direction along the distribution. And that's predictive. Um, so very different type of thing. And then we have our multi-strat, which invests across them and changes the allocations across them on a monthly basis. And it's all equity-based? All equity vol, all domestic. Right, 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 right. And um, so, yeah, I mean, you've been doing this a long time. So I guess, you know, what are there any particular experiences over the years in trading vol? that have kind of shaped the way you look at the world, that really stuck with you and kind of almost defined your character as a trader? So I just walked you through my history, but now try and actually get there. Try and imagine that mm. uh, in 2007, 2008, 2009, during the great financial crisis, that you mm. are and your firm is 13% of the S&P 500 option volume. You're absorbing massive trades um, risk that is held by the world and uh, and often in a very stressful situation for the market, not, not just for you, but really uh, for markets. Hmm. Um, what you're seeing firsthand when you're doing that is you're seeing the visceral kind of fear and pain in the market, the positioning and what's driving it. And you're seeing that on a second by second and minute by minute basis. Um, you're getting that feedback from the floor, from actual places. And by the way, during the great financial crisis, yes, there were electronic markets, but they didn't work very well, right? Mm. Um, because things were inefficient, because you couldn't see markets, because they were very wide and very liquid. And so there's this experience after you've been through both originally the tech bubble bursting and the great financial crisis, especially at that volume, to understanding, and you have to, if you're absorbing that liquidity, you have to understand what the participants are doing um, and why they're doing it and how it works. And you do that day after day, you kind of get plugged into the matrix. You kind of see the whole picture when you're in that environment. Um, mm-hmm. 
We had traders on the floor at the Board of Trade, at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, at the SIBO, at the Amex, at the Picos, right? We're getting all of this information firsthand and not just off of a screen, right? But really who's doing what, what broker is buying it, what size, how does the spread go down? Why do they do it that way? You know, is it this, there's so much rich information that you get under those circumstances and you really understand, begin to understand the bigger picture. So I think that's where the understanding on, on positioning really, you know, it got started before that actually, I worked uh, at, at Bear Wagner, which is a specialist firm uh, out of New York. And so we were one of the first market-making firms. Actually, we were the first market-making firm to really team up with a specialist Delta one side. So there was always this interest in kind of connecting the options market to the broader markets, but that really uh, took hold in full during the great financial crisis. So mm-hmm. also when you're 13% of the volume, you have the position that the market has. You are the dealer. You know exactly what the cards are because you're holding them. Um, and um, the more you hold those cards, you realize you're competing with the rest of the world, right? On those same positions broadly, maybe not customer by customer, maybe not market maker by market maker, bank by bank, but mm-hmm. broadly. And you begin to see the predictive value of that because you have those positions and they, they're never going to monetize. They're never going to realize the profit that's in there because that gets distributed out to the underlying market in terms of other flows, right? And so to really capture those edges, a lot of times you have to get out in front of what are the third, the second order effects of, of that positioning. So I think in being a dealer and being one of the biggest um, and holding those cards and understanding the effects and having to, um, it, it really um, informed a lot of what I meant. Interesting. Interesting. All right. That's good. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, when you talk about the, uh, the dealer, uh, I'm now picturing the emoji that everyone knows so well of the gorilla that you talk about. And uh, for those who don't know, you you are known as the Vanacharma on Twitter, and you've come up with this whole kind of emoji language that describes the various things that you talk about in options. And uh, I find it fascinating and quite entertaining, which I'm sure why you've done it that way. Uh, but let's delve a little bit into that. So, you know, these second order effects that you talk a lot about, like Vana and Charm and the flows associated with them that then impact markets. When did you really notice, because you've been doing this, like you say, since 2000, when did you really notice the disproportionate impact that these second order options effects were having on markets? Because options have grown a lot, right, over the last decade or so. So was there like an inflection point? Was there a turning point? And, and how did that kind of come So about? this answer is going to surprise some people. Um, from the very beginning, meaning as soon as I was educated in markets and options enough and you know to to have been a participant for several years um it shocks me all the time how many people that stood in those pits with me or that i know from from uh, vol markets who who get all this stuff broadly who come to me nowadays and say listen i, I listen to your stuff all the day all the time now and what i what i love about it they say is that i've known this stuff all along but you really formalized it and made it very clear to what's happening. It's kind of like, I knew this in my lizard brain. We we acted on some of these things, but we didn't really fully realize how structurally critical it was and how, or, or we didn't express it and under, you know, um, verbalize it. So I think there's been some social psychology around this and understanding of it at the market making level, but very, there's been very little connection between that world and the broad asset management world and the appreciation for it and the broad asset management. So what we've done is we've kind of spanned that a bit as it's become more important, as there's been more adoption of options to broad asset management, et cetera. Um, so I don't think this is like, as much as it's new to most of the world, mm-hmm. I don't think it's completely no, new to those that have known about it for some time. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, have the effects gotten bigger? Yes, but have they just gotten bigger just in the last couple of years, which is what you hear from most people? No, it's been secularly more important. And and uh, and more um, meaningful for the whole market, but again, it's been meaningful in some form or another, right, for quite some time. Um, mm, and I think that's important to know. And you, because uh, you say you've told me in that last conversation we had at Real Vision was, um, you know, the actual volume that it takes to move the market is a lot less than people appreciate, right? It's nothing it's like in this time in the, you know during this time of seasonality it's a, it's only about 30 million uh, you know it's it's about 80 million you know other times 
call it 50 million on average, you know, give or take uh, 60 million. That's the million. I keep saying million, billion. I apologize. Billion. Yeah, I was billion, about to billion, say. Billion with a B. Yeah, you lose, yeah. You lost three zeros there. Yeah. Um, but but that's the whole point is it's people lose the zeros, right? And the reality is the whole market, you know, the, the US market's about $50 trillion, trillion mm-hmm. with a T. Mm-hmm. And the global market's about a hundred, you know, and and uh, in a hundred trillion, just to make the numbers easy, at a hundred trillion dollar market, right? Um, one one thousand would be, you know, a hundred billion. We're not even there, right? We're at half that. Um, you know, we're at one two thousandth of the market is moving mm-hmm. the market on a daily basis. So when you see the market up two percent in a day, you know. Guess what? That that has nothing to do with what you know the the real percentage. Yeah, two percent. The market just increased in value, right, by two trillion dollars. But it only took maybe a hundred billion dollars to make that move. Mm. And I think that's such a critical thing that so few. I mean, you would think this would be probably like fundamental. Like anybody in capital markets, this would be the first thing they teach you. Mm. It's not really talked about. It's not really understood. This is like venture capital. Like you know, venture capital comes to market and they. They release five percent of the float and then value the business at at a billion dollars. When you know, there's a lot of questions whether or not that should be the valuation. That's the whole market. The whole market mm-hmm. is essentially valued on whatever those flows are that are incremental in some period, right? Um, when the reality of those valuations may be very different, as we saw during the tech bubble, valuations can be eighty percent higher than they should be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because flows are what it really matters. The market is at. In any short period, not a day, not a month, even a multi-year, five-year period can be just a voting machine of just flows, supply versus demand, which may have nothing to do with fundamentals at all. And I think that's the other major thing that you realize as a market maker is that prices has so little to do on any real meaningful time frame with fundamentals. It has everything to do with supply and demand. And supply and demand are often very divorced, happen for very different reasons than fundamentals. Um, um, and and that's very much uh, a critical thing to learn. There have been studies done that over any period, less than a decade, 10 years, fundamentals are not only uh, non-correlated to returns, but they are actually, and you can measure fundamentals in a lot of different ways. They did it over many different types of metrics, are, are not only fundamentally, uh, they're often inversely correlated with outcomes. And that's, I think that's super interesting. Have you got any theory on why that might be? Why it might be reverse? Yeah. Yeah, because of positioning. Because okay. if people think fundamentals are what matter, that's what they're positioned for. And at the end of the day, if everybody's positioned that way, that creates yeah. supply reflexively the other way. I see. Yeah, so the pain trades. That's how you find the pain the trades. pain trade, exactly. Yeah, interesting. Okay, um, so let's talk a little bit about something, again, that we've spoken about, which is uh, systematic volatility supply. Right. So there's been it's become very fashionable uh, through various ETFs to sell vol. If we look at the AUMs of some of these short vol, whether they're zero DTE selling or whether they're longer dated, I don't know. But they've grown to like 60 billion dollars of AUM over the last few years. Uh, as a number I saw from Nomura, um, institutional overwriters that I used to see when I was a market maker that has been going on for decades. Uh, we've got structured product issuance to try and hunt for yield. That's, again, a vol seller, often on the downside. And now we've also got dispersion players who do index versus single stock volatility relative value, which, again, are sellers of index. So what do you make of all this just overwhelming supply of index? And, um, you know, is it something that's just going to keep getting bigger uh, or is it overshot now? Like, how do you feel about that? Yeah, so some of these things, and I think I want to start with the, what I think is the most important um, and and. I'm going to paint this in this picture. Like when you looked at GME and AMC and everybody was talking about, uh, you know, the the meme stock craze. And I know this is kind of an interesting metaphor, but uh, stick with me here is everybody said, you know, at first was like, oh, it's retail, you know, driving these. And then you went and dug into the numbers and you said, wow, like 90% of this is not retail, it's institution. And there was a big debate as to, okay, what's retail's role here? Are they really the ones driving this? And the big takeaway for me was, yes, it is retail, but it was the fact that retail was consistent and they were a lean. Any lean in this market drives a cascade 
right? Any consistently and something you know is coming no matter what, even if it's only 10% of the market, that gives an edge. And then guess what? Then the people are buying out in front of it because they know it's coming and then it's moving price and then they're buying again and there you get a cascade, right? And that's what happened with, with those meme names, right? It was like momentum beget momentum. So it's not about who's biggest and where it's coming from. It's like, who are the consistent mm. lean? And the consistent kind of unshakable lean is structured products. And I think that's a critical thing to understand. Vol sellers can blow out. They can do whatever. The unlevered participant, right, is structured products. And there's a wave of structured product issuance that's happening as a function of two major, much bigger picture things. One, interest rates just being dramatically higher, right? Structured products are yield plus products. The way they work is you get the T-bill rate and then you put, you know, whatever structure on top of it. That's the beautiful thing with derivatives. They are capital efficient. They were created. People forget derivatives were not created just for the dimensionality. That's part of it. But they were also created just in the 70s because interest rates were high and people wanted to maintain those uh, that exposure while still getting the yield. And that's what structured products do. This is the first time we've had structural inflation where these derivatives have actually been commonplace and that you can actually take advantage of them. There's a ton of issuance of structured products because it makes sense. If you can make eight and a half, nine percent non-correlated, right, with relatively low risk and low beta in a market that is, you know, expensive and broadly has a lot of risk with increasing interest rates, right? Mm -hmm. That's appealing, especially after a two-year period when the market has done essentially nothing, right? Now, two years ago, the the value proposition was you would instead of getting eight and a half percent, you would get four and a half percent. Not nearly as that was still better. That was still better than the zero you were getting in the bank, though, right? Still better than the zero you're getting in the bank. Yeah. But like, if you're relative to stocks, the market had been up on average twelve percent a year for the last right. decade. Right. Why would you go for four and a half when the market's been up twelve percent? You know, for almost every year for a decade, right? Mm -hmm. Now the value proposition is well, the market's not really going anywhere. There's all these risks, right? There's macro. There's all these things. Interest rates are going higher, and guess what? It's not four and a half. It's eight and a half. Right. So that simple value proposition, which is real, yeah. and again, a low leverage, we're not talking about a leverage strategy, is very appealing. And that is being sold day in, day out by banks to all kinds of institutions, family offices, high net worth. And that is a stable vol supply that's coming in. It's not a levered. It's not a, it's not a vol supply that's going to get shaken out when the market gets stressed. It's not a, a levered concentrated risk. It's dispersed across the whole market. And it's not price sensitive, right? And it's not price sensitive. Yeah. And yeah. so the second you have that, now there's a lean. Now the banks have this and they need to load it off. Now they're loading it off. And now that's helping pinball because there's vol supply, which is creating more vol selling. Vol sellers make money. They make more, you know, there's more interest. Returns look good. Now, you have, you know, this is a cycle that gets started. But the key here is that structured product issuance. Mm. I remember when I first started in the industry, one of the structured products that people used to do were capital guaranteed notes where you, you're, it would actually be a buyer of call options and they'd be using the interest rates in a bond to kind of pay for the call option. So you have mm -hmm. like, you, you give your money, you're going to get that money back at expiry plus whatever the FTSE did and a certain participation to the FTSE. But those are structured products that are sold. doing that now too. There's actually an ETF that does that. Um, right. There, you know, that does exist now. And, and, and there are some calls that people are buying essentially, essentially for zero, right. That are funded by on this. And that, those are interesting products. That's just kind of a side note. But the majority of these structured products are selling ball. Um, yeah. And most of them are selling calls, actually, um, uh, in some form or another. There's a lot of put selling as well. Um, mm -hmm. But but broadly, uh, very, very kind of vol compressing. But the yield argument makes sense when you think the market is highly valued, right? Because you're saying that, you know, that's where the value proposition is. It's like, do you want what looks like a pretty safe, eight to 10% return a year, or do you want to own this market when valuations are where they are? Now, valuations we know don't necessarily matter that much for a long period of time, but you still don't feel warm and fuzzy owning equities here necessarily, right? So, so it's very interesting. Historically, if you look at this you know, 68 to 82 period um, where markets went nowhere, right? Uh, equity markets literally went nowhere. Nominal terms lost 70% of their value um, in, in real terms. 
there was a massive move out of equities into bonds, which is what you'd expect. As interest rates go higher, the relative value proposition changes and multiples have to go down in the equity market to compensate for higher interest rates. At some point, if you're getting 20% of the bond market, you're not going to go to the equity market like, or you better demand a very high kind of earnings yield, right? Mm. So that's something we know. This has always happened, right? There's this push and pull between bonds and equities. But it's what's interesting is up until this time, we haven't had an inflationary period with derivatives and structured products. And so before that used to really increase volatility in the short term in equity markets and reduce, reduce valuations. For the first time now, we have a different loop. Instead of just going to the bond market, it's going to the bond market plus. It's going to the bond market plus vol compression. Mm. And vol compression is equity supportive Correct. and vol compressing. So you have this really interesting dynamic that from a macro perspective, interest rates are reducing liquidity from the market. So broadly across the whole market, you're, you're reducing liquidity, you're increasing volatility, right? Uh, through that metric. While at the same time, then taking uh, volatility compression right at the center in the index and coming and providing supply. Mm. So it looks like a donut, right? At the end of the day, volatility is expanding and it's getting compressed in the middle. That's why dispersion's working so well. That's why dispersion's been such an incredible trade for now three years, four years, right? Not really, really 10 years, but that's that's a whole nother thing. You've had index compression in the middle, and now it's even expanding out. So you're getting things flying around on the edge, right? You're getting FX issues, you're getting gold, you're getting commodity movements, you're getting seven stocks moving one direction and other stuff moving the other way. But the index in two years is nowhere. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's all structural. It's not just macro. Everybody points to the macro focus, but the reality is you're really getting this structural change in the distribution as a function of supply and demand um, on different kind of ball dynamics and liquidity. But but like implied correlation is like all time lows right now. Correct me if I'm wrong. Right? Correct. And so why isn't is it that? horrible time to enter that trade? Well, yeah, let's let's there's two two, you know, two aspects to every trade is where is it relative? Like, is this a good structural trade? And then where is it priced, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, structurally, it's an incredible trade. It has been for some time. Eventually, a good structural trade eventually gets very expensive. Mm -hmm. And the question becomes, is it too expensive relative to the structural realities? And I would argue the structural realities are still very strong. Are we at, you know, just because growth become, became very expensive in 97, did that mean it wasn't going, you know, to double and triple? No. Um, you always want to have the structure, you know, uh, positioning on your side first and foremost. Price, though, yes, it's very expensive. Um, you know, so you better know what you're doing at this point. And be, you know, have a have an understanding when that when that structural reality changes because it can move dramatically in yeah. price. Again, um, we talked about pain trades, right? Like, surely this is becoming one of the biggest crowded trades in the vol market. Correct. It's crowded in the vol market, but again, remember it's counterbalancing a a counter crowd, right? Which is all the structured product, all the everything else that's happening to the index versus the liquid lack of liquidity on on the tail. So mm -hmm. it's kind of the reflexivity of rebalancing what is an otherwise balanced trade. So the question is: Is it now balanced or overbalanced? Right. Uh, it, it, what I can tell you is it's unstable. Um, you know, it, it's fairly balanced. It's like kind of like you have a situation where growth and value push back and forth just because that creates no volatility. It's not the same thing as if nothing was happening and there was no pressure on your side, right? When you have a situation when the markets are pinned or things are happening, but it's because you have these two sumos banging up against each other, that's not the same thing as just nothing no wrestling means. at all. What that yeah. means is like the smallest little shift now can create some big volatility. And I think it's important to understand that dynamic. There is, it's becoming a sumo market. It's becoming a very levered kind of double-sided. And yes, it's very balanced currently, but that doesn't mean it's not risky. And I think that's- Yeah, important. I mean, what, what you just described sounds like an unstable equilibrium, right? So it just, it takes a little little flick and you could see some quite crazy vol. Right, and then but as we've seen in work. like 17, that, that equilibrium can remain stable and become incredibly like pinning and- for a year, for yeah. two years, you know, things like that can happen. But I would agree the, you know, there's definitely antennas up and it's not just mine, given the size and scale of the dispersion trade uh, at, at uh, you know, I think Millennium is up to almost 20 pods trading dispersion. I think the biggest are 5 wow. billion plus gross. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, these are, that's just one entity, but there's, you know, Citadel, Ballyaz, and keep going. All of them have multiple pods at this point and they're all getting pretty big. And so you have to, they're the smarter guys in the room and they're quicker. And so you kind of, that that makes it less, slightly less dangerous, but it's definitely becoming a concentrated trade. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of concentrated trades, let's talk a little bit about zero DTE, which has become so fashionable, right? P- particularly from what I'm seeing in the retail option trader space. There's a lot of people out there people who are educating people around systematic option trading strategies that involve zero DTE, whether it's outright selling, strangles, iron condors, whatever it may be. This is compressing another factor that's compressing vol, but in the absolute front end of the curve, which is allowing banks to kind of hedge their risk with the cheapest gamma on the planet. So is this something that we fear creates a blow up? as some people have expressed concern about. I can't remember exactly who it was. It was out, I think it was uh, some JP Morgan analyst guy saying that he thought that was going to create Volmageddon part two. How do you feel about zero DTEs? I mean, it's uh, it's it's definitely the sexiest conversation. Everybody wants to have the, you know, <laughs> this one. This is like talking about, uh, you know, the most explosive thing. But I think that's the important takeaway, right? Is that this is the most... Um, explosive moment on the distribution, right? Um, it is the closest to expiration. It's the most gamma. It is the most powerful. And that's why it's exciting and scary and all the things. But I think that's the big takeaway and that we can't divorce ourselves from that very simple reality. It's a magnifying glass, right? It is this very, very intense magnifier. It's not the 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 lean as I was mentioning before, that is creating the vol compression, which I think is structured products and other things, right? But it is a magnifier. The important to note though, it's very fickle, right? Like unlike the other flows, this is very fickle. Like it's one day, tomorrow, mm-hmm. whatever the positioning is, it's gone. New start. It's cleared out, it's cleaned out every single cleaned day. Cleaned out. Right? And so I think that's the thing that people are not focusing on enough. Um, so I, I cannot personally attribute um, the vault compression to that. Is it making it more pinned because it's a winning trade? People are doing it more. It's the most highly profitable if it works, but also a most risky moment. So um, is it making it more pinned cur- currently? Yes. But can that change in a day? Yeah, absolutely. I can can something like a bomb go off and you know, New York uh, or, you know, heaven forbid some, you know, and, and all of a sudden the market's down uh, 10% a day and all these guys blow out in the next day. Guess what? It's all exas- exaggerating because everybody's coming in now buying the zero DTA. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's not, it's it's kind of the second derivative effect. It's, it, it is magnifying right now. It is vol compressing, uh, but uh, eventually will it be vol exacerbating? Probably. Right. It is mm-hmm. what it does is it creates a, a, a faster rate of change of whatever direction the, the things are going. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's the important part. Second time I'm going to bring up AMC and Jimmy. I don't know why, but th- this is, I think, an important analogy, especially for these kind of, you know, the, uh, who, the people who are listening to this. That was a, a very uh, unhedgeable kind of moment on the, the distribution of outcomes because there's nothing you can hedge against. So right? if GME goes up 5,000%, like, how do you hedge that? You can only hedge it with GME. Mm-hmm. Um, the same is true for zero DTE. So if you're trading something like 30-day vol, you can trade you know, 20 day vol against it. You can trade 40 day vol against it. If you're trading a 10% of the money put, you can trade the the 8% of the money put and the 11%, you know, it's easy to hedge and it's much more stable. But when you're you're talking about um, zero DTE, it's a much more unstable thing. Um, At the recent RMC, the CBO's risk management conference, which is really like insiders, they're kind of talking kind of shop. There there was a presentation on zero DTE and and the question got, you know, ask, how do you hedge your zero DT exposure to these market makers who are up there? And the answer was, we hedge it with zero DT exposure, <laughs> that you cannot hedge it with anything else. Mm-hmm. And what that means is there is no liquidity in that market relative to the size of that market. Yes, it is balanced currently, right? Um, and it's balanced currently because the market makers who are taking the liquidity have to rebalance within zero DT to make sure it's balanced. That makes mm-hmm. sense. But the risk here is, is what happens if all of a sudden something happens and the book gets cleared and all the dealers are on the wrong side of the trade. Yeah. Then they have to come get it back in the zero DT and there's no longer liquidity. 
So the amount, of the, I think the problem here is concentration again. It's um, it, it's it's the size and scale of the magnifying glass. If a big trade was to go down in that space, all of a sudden and take market makers and dealers in a certain direction, they can't distribute that liquidity out to the rest of the market and that could itself cause an issue. And that was highlighted in that conversation based on some questions we had. And I thought that was very insightful. And does that um, does that make them want to put up limits in terms of how much zero DTE counterparties are allowed to trade in the same direction or anything like that? Is there any... When you say they, who is they? Regulators? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once a crisis happens, sure. But no no regulation happens until uh, until somebody, you know, something big and bad actually happens. Right. Um, I'll give you another very simple example. This also got highlighted during that same zero DT conversation. I thought it was fairly insightful is that there's no margining currently to zero DT options. There's no margining. (laughs) Amazing. doesn't exist. There's no margining by definition is done daily. There's no that's, intraday margining. That's insane. Right? It's insane. That's the most risky thing you could trade and you don't have to put up any margin for it. It's How is that insane. possible? That's the truth. That's insane. Now, now to be clear, that's regulatory margin. A clearinghouse is not going to just allow you to come in with no money and trade these things. They have uh, margins. They may have intraday, but there are plenty. As you know, when you have a regulatory, no regulatory requirement and you have, um, you know, entities out there, some entity will let, will let you come in with minimal capital, may not track your P&L. I mean, they'll track your P&L, but they may not look at how, at your risk enough or only look at it too, too little a range and, and off you go. So um, what that creates is uh, there are, um, you know, people who are out there selling nickels, right? And zero DTE and are doing it much greater than their capital, right? That's not the whole market, but the reality is there is definitely some of that going on and there are bad actors and eventually that grows with time if you allow it to to be the case. So I bring this up as another general risk out there. Hmm. That's something that they're working on from what I hear through the grapevine, like that, that... Government at the very least has realized they should probably margin forty percent of the option market that they're not margining. Um, <laughs> but but uh, this is my point: is it takes things. These things move incredibly slow and are incredibly inefficient. And if you're expecting you know some some change to happen before a crisis, good luck. Yeah, and and the growth of these ETFs is is a bit scary then, right? Because that those ETFs become self-fulfilling and systematic and pro- they don't care if they're selling vol at 20 or if they're selling vol at five, they're still going to sell it. Right. And the guys on the other side of that are like, okay, I'll take this vol that you're giving me for free. And then I might encourage the market to go down a little bit. So, so the gamma starts to work. Um, and the retail, the retail client base has bought a load of ETFs thinking these five years or however many years worth of old returns are just too good to be true get wiped out. It's basically a repeat of XIV Volmageddon, right? Yeah. I mean, they're all, uh, again, vol pinning until they're vol uh, exaggerating, right? Uh, the yeah. key for an XIV or something along those lines to happen is concentration and leverage. So if it gets concentrated into a fund or an entity or a part of the market, which is unstable, and it's over leveraged relative to its capital, that's when these implosions happen. Eventually you get there, but until you get there, you know, until people take excessive risk and there's, it's generally not just people broadly, but in general, some entity or another becomes too big relative to its trade and it's too big uh, relative to the market. Um, until that happens, these things tend to be reflexively more compressing or more mm. exaggerating until that happens. So, um, yeah, I was speaking to Chris Sidial recently, uh, who, who obviously, you know, and he was like saying that, you know, in his opinion, the amount of vol selling strategies out there right now is pretty big, right? In terms of size. And I guess I know it can get bigger for sure. I mean, VIX hasn't breached 10 yet. And in 2017, it spent what half the year under 10 or something. So I guess my question, and I think a lot of viewers would benefit from the answer to this question is, how do you identify the telltale signs of market fragility and what should people be looking at to get some warning or some red flags that, oh, this thing that we kind of always knew was a risk is now more imminent danger than it otherwise would be. Are there any things that you can point people towards? Yeah. So I want to lead this part off by saying 
people don't think about probability well broadly. Um, people think that when they ask this question, they want me to tell them when there is a, you know, a 30 or 40% chance of a uh, 1% probability, right? Like, good luck, right? Like that never happens. What can happen and often does is that uh, the 1% probability um, can be as high as five or like the 0.1% probability can be as high as 1%, right? Like mm-hmm. you can get these things where the odds are significantly higher for events. There's still tail events, right? Like mm-hmm. by definition, um, you, you're, you know, just because you see certain signs with a, that, that increase the probability of occurrence doesn't mean it's probable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I really want to emphasize that point because people are like, you'll hear people say, well, Jem said when this happens, this is the market's going to crash. Yeah. No, it just means the probability has gone from... 0.1 to one, right? And mm. if you take enough shots at 1% that are priced at 0.1%, eventually you hit a home run. But you may need 100 times doing that, right? Mm. For that mm. to happen. And 100 times might take three years, right? It may take five years, right? The key there is you will not have spent as much money as you need to, as it would normally cost. You'll have spent one-tenth of the money and then really have had the benefit uh, when the tail comes. And I think that's the broad construct we need to, to speak about these things. Again, people get divorced from that reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so that having been said, what are some signs? The biggest, um, most important parts of the distribution, as I mentioned before, are the moments on the tails, on the edges, right? Mm-hmm. On the furthest edges, the most convex, illiquid mm-hmm. moments and so when you begin to see those moments really start to expand quickly, the speed of them start to change. Mm-hmm. Think VIX calls. Think uh, like out of the money, like far out of the money calls. Think um, uh, margin puts in the S&P, like nickels and dimes. Think, um, you know, again, the most, the thing that gets you the most convexity uh, under these scenarios. When you start to see that reflexively, those things start to break out. That is your best sign. And it's really a speed of move and change of the price of those things. And that happens not that often. When it does happen, in my experience, every tail event has been preceded at least by an hour uh, or two or a day of by those kinds of things. And what that is, is it's an informational cascade. People who know start to yeah. see this and buy back A and B uh, more important than just informational cascade, in my opinion, it is a sign of stress coming from some entity that has to cover um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the most convex moment. And that's the most notional leverage. Um, so when you start to see that, that's usually where it starts. As long as that stuff is available, right? Other things can happen, but people can still ultimately hedge for the tail and the really long expansion and, and, so and it's also reflexively like the more, the less supply there is of that, the more there is less to hedge and the more stress that begins to build. So that convex moment across the market, and there's about a bunch of them we can point to, is mm. the most important thing to keep an eye on when you're starting to, to see, are we going to, are we about to enter some really stressful moment? Yeah, but historically, you know, is there like a maturity of crash puts that people gravitate to? Because now with the zero DTEs, won't people just hoover up as many of those as they can get their hand on? For, 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 or is it a case of you don't know when the crash is coming, so you'll use a one-month downside because that will capture enough time that the stress would have actually occurred by then? Yeah, so you, so uh, first of all, the one thing we didn't mention with zero DTE is that you know everybody makes – I told you all the reasons why it's dangerous. What I didn't tell you is why the reasons it's not dangerous, and I think I kind of implied it, but it disappears every day. Mm. And so I would actually argue that in increasing, so we didn't just get a 40% increase in zero DT and everything else stayed the same. We actually had a dramatic decrease in, you know, uh, other vol trading relative to zero DT. And so people have somewhat transitioned over time a little bit to zero DT. Uh, In my mind, that's actually better for risk in the sense that if you think about the things that really have imploded the market over time, mm-hmm. generally they're uh, like, there's a reason long-term is in long-term capital management. At the end of the day, if you're out in a liquid things, the more liquid they are, the more dangerous they are. 
uh, a a one year or two year or 10 year in the case of 2008 variant swaps, right? Um, thing can go to whatever price. It doesn't matter. There's no expiration for a long time and whatever, if there's more demand than supply, guess what? It's just going to go to the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if oil can go to negative 30 and, and 10 year variant swaps can go to 60, which is crazy, right? Anything can happen. So what we've done is we've removed some of the more from a more of the liquid, it can be priced anywhere to things that just disappear tomorrow. So I would argue structurally, there's some less risk to that. Mm. Um, and and so what do you go buy in those scenarios? The things that are more liquid, right? And that, that create more convexity are the best things to buy. Um, uh, I think, you know, that generally is going to be a month or so One to two uh, you don't want to go too far out early right because some of these things are just short-term stress events that then settle down mm-hmm. um that's what probably you should be buying now relative to you know so somewhere between uh you know somewhere a month two months and less but the reality is the things that will, are the sign that i'm kind of talking about are really kind of one week kind of uh think the, the after usually it's the monday after a weekend Right. Right. You want to own the weekend because weekends can be stressful. Mm-hmm. So when you start to see kind of um, not maybe one, two day, but really, um, you know, three, five, seven day uh, convexity start to explode. That's usually the, the best indicator. But we're kind of picking details yeah. here. Yeah. 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 But, but keeping an eye on that stuff is certainly yep. sensible. Right. Uh, if it's having material moves, because I, that totally makes sense from a psychological and from a game theory perspective it's like you have the whole market and there'll be certain players in the market who know that either they're about to blow up or someone close to them is about to blow up and what they're going to do they're going to try and hedge themselves with the thing that gives them the and most to be clear, the two things one it's the informational piece but two it itself is reflexive because mm-hmm. once that stuff starts to explode then the everybody has it like that's the ultimate out for everybody and the mm-hmm. second you remove that from the market now everybody's looking around and being like, whoa, those are gone. I got to get out. Right? Yeah. And that those, those head, yeah. yeah reflexively yeah. A, a lack of the most important moment for everybody. It's hard to, you know, there's a, there's a saying, if you may know this from the trading floor, sell a cab, drive a cab. You know, the idea of a cab is a cabinet. Is it something that you sell at a nickel or, or nothing? So if you sell a nickel, you know, yeah. eventually you're going to be driving a cab. Right. right. And and I think that's uh sell a cab, drive a cab. You know, you don't sell those because the amount of scale of um uh you know how far those can go. And it's also the most important moment on you always have to have your tails hedged because mm-hmm. it's the most important mm-hmm. moment that you may not be able to get back when you need it. Mm, yeah, makes sense, makes a lot of sense. All right, so let's um I guess before we close it out, because you're so engaged with the market anyway, I think it'd be good to just sort of we're 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 not far from 2024 now. Only, only got December left. Um, you've done a great job of calling for a move higher. Uh, me and you were both on Twitter, I think, a month ago, saying that the way vol price action was behaving didn't suggest a crash was imminent. I mean, I didn't necessarily know we were going to rally ten percent in a month. That was pretty pretty aggressive. Uh, but but kind of how do you? What's your big picture kind of feel for the path into and through next year? Are there any sort of big things on your radar? Um, any kind of moments in time where you think, you know, we talk often talk about moments of windows of weakness or non-strength, as you put it before. How do you see how do you see that path going into 2024? Yeah, the reason we were able to call both the decline down to 4,100, then also to call broad price somewhere in that 50 point range of, you know, 40. 50 to 41 quarter, right? 75 point range for the, the stop. And then the day, almost to the day, the reversal. Like those are not coincidences, right? Like how are we able to do that? A couple of important things. It, it, seasonality is, is not a magical construct. What, you know, if everybody says, oh, Santa Claus and all these magical things. The reality is a couple of things. One, um, in a year where the market's up 10, 20%, 20% or so what it is now, 20% markets $100 trillion. That's a $20 trillion increase in collateral. That's a massive momentum factor. And it's not just concentrated broadly as momentum. It's focused on certain times of reinvestment. When do those happen? They happen on a monthly basis. They happen on a 
uh, on a quarterly basis and they happen on an annual basis and some varying degree happen over each, right? What we've had is a massive rally here now, 10%, right? Uh, what we, you know, uh, we've had a 20% rally in the year and that's a, again, $20 trillion in the context of $50 billion that moves the market on a daily basis. It's an astronomical amount of flows and positive flows that are coming Jan 1. Now, that's not $20 trillion that's going to go to work. It's probably close to two. But $2 trillion is still massive. And so that's coming Jan 1, and people know that. Um, that's one. So that's, again, the first thing. We talked about consistent things that we know that can be a lean. Now we talk about the other things. Um Two, we know that vol compression from structured products is significant and, and is has vol supply is steady, as you have highlighted as well. Um, but important to note, if in the context of that, then what does that mean for flows? Well, December is the longest dated expiration and has the most uh, uh, open interest because it was leaps. It's been there for many years and there's tons of positioning. It's in the end of the year. The next biggest are is January and these, these quarterly. Right? They're all the ball open interest is concentrated in this one month window, which not coincidentally is Santa Claus and January effect always. And it's consistent. So it's not just that when years are up, the market has a reinvestment that happens. That's a big part of seasonality, but also because you have these three massive expirations with tons of skew open interest that have to decay out and all the buying has to come back into the market to rebalance up. These are those Vana and charm flows we talk so much about. It's very concentrated in these windows. And guess what? Volume weighted time at this time of the year, starting at Thanksgiving and all the way till, till mid-January is 30% lower than any other time of the year. What do I mean by volume weighted times? Holiday, it's not just about holidays. It's the days around the holidays that nobody's working and nothing's happening. We saw that Thanksgiving was just a nothing burger. You just removed a week of, of charm out of the market, mm -hmm. right? And you removed a week of charm exactly when the most open interest existed and the most flows existed. People picked up and we were very clear to highlight, this is coming and we don't get a decline enough and we don't unpin ball, which didn't seem likely. The turn is coming and it's coming November 1st, right? Why mm -hmm. November 1st? Again, because of... We had there the market was down. So the 30th and first, there were negative flows because the market had declined and you had a reduction in collateral. That was kind of holding the market down, but vol was compressed. And then the other flows were coming, right? Mm. And so volume weighted time is lower at this time of the year. The reinvestment of collateral is coming. And then lastly, guess what? All those holidays, no Thanksgiving, which is a big one, Christmas. We're basically removing full weeks. What are those weeks? Those are the window of weakness. Every year, the window of weakness is removed in November. It's removed in December. Mm. So mm. we're accelerating right through the window of weakness, right back into those Vana charm flows, right? I've got, I've got one question about this that is not clear in my head. So I totally get that if there are hedges that are put on, dealers are short against those hedges. And as the hedges decay away, they have to cover that short, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we Correct. talk about in banner and charm flows. Correct. But what about when those hedges are rolled or re-entered into? When do we see the market impact of that? Because that's, that's a the real, That's the same thing. That's the same thing as um, kind of... Uh, so think about it. If those are rolled, yeah. now what's happening? Now uh, you're... you're reducing the open interest on you're, you're you're pressuring the shorts so so you're selling these people are coming in are selling what everybody is short right so all of that buyback happens right and then the buyback is now just a new rebalancing right of delta long and short for dealers um it it is the fuel that eventually drives the buyback basically stock doesn't expire it's a positioning that's balancing a um a position that disappears and needs to be bought back every month until it's rebalanced again um, yeah but is there not market impact on the rebalance that makes the market drop though no not really i mean there is there is uh there is a rebalancing between dealers and customers that happens mm -hmm. right a re uh, shorting of open interest for new expirations that then leads back to more vana and charm flows but uh, the point here is when the option position is put on, that is the delta exposure of it, right? But it let's say it's a, let's let's say for example, we're getting a little bit more technical now, but sure. I think some people will appreciate it. 
So let's say, for example, we someone does a 25 delta risk reversal, right? Mm -hmm. So 25 delta put, they buy and they sell a 25 delta call. And th therefore, it's a 50 delta structure and it's in $100 million or whatever the hell it is, massive, $100 billion. That's $50 billion of delta that needs to be sold onto the market when that trade first comes up. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then as that trade, let's say that's a three month trade. As that trade decays away, and let's say we're now two weeks from expiry, those options aren't 25 deltas anymore. They're five deltas, maybe. Okay. Right. So the so we've gone from a 50 delta to a 10 delta risk reversal. 40 million, 40 billion has been bought back in the vanner and charm of that decay, right? Mm -hmm. But now if the client comes in and wants to re-engage a 50 delta risk reversal, why yeah. is that a not why is that not a net sell of 40 billion dollars basically right? yeah i mean look that is a incremental flow on the time it comes into the equity market right but mm. to the options market it's the opposite right so the point is it's a balance between the options market and, and stock market you can't just ignore the option market value right the the effect of um the effect of where that option market delta is is that those are real deltas to the market mm. um the, the question is what's happening to the broad market structure the deltas of the whole piece options plus stock mm. and what does that mean to flows right if options versus stock decrease in delta right that means that delta needs to be bought back to balance mm -hmm. that's the important part is like what is the whole market changing in delta what is the incremental flow that comes from that? The actual effect of coming and buying an option, right? That is new short delta, but then the market, then the, the other side is selling stock to balance. So it's a balanced trade at for the whole market at initiation, um, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, delta like one effects. Don't get me wrong. If somebody comes at, at the time of the trade, if somebody comes in and buys puts, it's just like selling stock at that moment yeah 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 but i guess when you're doing a massive size of a rebalance that is that you know would have market impact i in my experience you you kind of do that over a period of time to try to minimize the impact right correct so That's they'll true. do like yeah we'll trade a risk reversal and it's got 40 billion to sell but work it over the day and have minimum or do x percent of volume so that so the impact isn't felt basically yeah, right. and, and I want to be clear. There are delta one effects. It's just like a, a stock uh, broad effect um, yeah. at the time of a trade. The question is, too, how many of these entities are um, just replacing a hedge, right? And, and, and how much of that is that versus somebody putting on a a a hedged trade when they put it on, right? So mm -hmm. if somebody's coming in and saying, okay, I want to be long put, long stock again, um, and they're essentially putting on that trade that has no delta to the market no, right that's a, yeah exactly that's yeah. got no delta and, and there's a lot of that too by the way people are saying each time okay i uh, i'm going to put this structure this this you know distributional trade on and, and a large portion is of the trades are that too right it's not mm. just outright hedges so there'll be um, a buy so, leg there'll be an offsetting buy leg of something a lot of the time basically right. Right, 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 right. Okay. It's not just because there's open interest in short puts doesn't mean there is uh, all of those are are naked delta hedges. Yeah. Um, okay. There could very well be short put, short stock entering the market, right, all at the same time. Okay. Or long and, and put, then, long stock, right? What are your thoughts then? Like, do you have like a little roadmap for people maybe for next year that you want to divulge? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been pretty vocal about this. I'll repeat it here, but I'll maybe give a little bit more detail. You know, um, this broad support, that doesn't mean the market has to go to the moon, right? But you see it like yesterday, market was up and then yeah, kind of gave strong. away. Yesterday, the market was up again and kind of giving away a little bit. That's the push and pull we've been talking about, macro versus flows. The overwhelming liquidity picture is negative, right? Like the market is like we are issuing a tremendous amount um, of, of debt. And that is money that is being pulled out of the market, right, um, from the treasury on a daily basis. And that issuance is significant right now. At the same time, the Fed is not meeting that. The Fed is saying, okay, we're doing QT. We're not buying that debt. Somebody else has to absorb that liquidity. And so the market is having to absorb that liquidity. And just like we talked about stock bond connection, that's moving money out of the stock market as well. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that's there. And people know that. It's all over Twitter. That's why I, the world is bearish. And understandably so. They're not wrong. Like on a supply demand, this is not macro. This is on a supply demand perspective. There's a ton of uh, equity and you know uh, bond supply. Um, now, the question is, are you know, if there was no structural support for other factors that I've talked about, then we would be down because there'd just be an overhang of supply. But there are dramatic forces of demand in this in these windows. And that's what I've kind of highlighted here. You know, let's call it $2 trillion of new collateral, Jan 1. That's mm. massive. Like, yeah, we're issuing, a, you know, $200 billion this quarter, right? Or 250 or whatever it is. But we're talking about, you know, different sizes of flows and different sizes of importance and different windows, different days, different specific, you know, periods. And, and you can take advantage of it. That is explicit structural supply and demand that are coming on certain days. This is why we can call things within a day or two and pinpoint general terms. So, um, so the point here is this is not a period where you want to, you know, try and bet on a vol event or, or try and short the market. That doesn't mean it's not going we can go down just not much right you have these significant mm -hmm. flows that are coming and yes the market front ran some of this because i was out there waving flags and talking about things other people are like you know um and people see these coming and the market doesn't broadly wait um and then what happens now the people who have been long as the market pops in the morning are more comfortable piecing some out and you know trading it and now it becomes a little bit more two-sided so this is the digestion that you see in markets, which is broadly technically strong for these same reasons. Now supply and demand are rebalancing, and but you have this edge, which is this underlying support and this vol compression, which are going to allow you to kind of lean in this window. So when does that go till? At least till January 3rd, but yeah. likely because then January 3rd enters window of strength and more Vaughn and Trump flows for January. And January, by the way, is the biggest OPEX for single stock options. Right. Um, you know, that probably goes through January 17th, which is the expiration. Maybe the 15th, which is the Monday of uh, options expiration. Maybe they bleed out all the things, but my guess is the 17th, which is the expiration. And then guess what? All these structural flows, which we've been leaning against and leaning against and which have been so important, they're done. Mm. And then the macro issuance is still there. Now we take a look at the next layer, which is what is the reflexivity of policy? What is, uh, where are we going to be? Where's the market going to be in terms of structural, you know, only come there. Those are the things that will affect the, the path going forward. And uh, I can speculate on what those will be. And I think there are higher probabilities for some, certain outcomes or another, but the, the next move is conditional to that move. And those moves are a function of, you know, I think we'll be higher here. And I think we'll probably go tease the new, you know, the all-time highs, maybe 4750 just below, right? There, there's supply sitting there. People have been stuck there for some time. So that's a general resistance up, up in that area. It's why we often see double tops and triple tops. And it's why we see minor new highs, little squeezes past, and then a rollover. These happen all the time because there's supply tied to, to price there in the market. There's also importance that these blow off tops and things happen where we're seeing, we saw it this morning, kind of came back in is if you squeeze enough, given how low ball is here, ball will go up on a fixed rate basis, not on necessarily. Which it fixed, did today, I believe. It correct, did. It did. Yeah. And, and if you get consistent day over day squeeze, right? And we start to really push and this $2 trillion coming in, people push it, squeeze it in the year and then squeeze it at the beginning of the year and know the flows are coming. If, you if that happens for five days and you get a squeeze on ball, guess what? That vol supply, which comes from structured products and all these things from dealers can get bled out. And now dealers are in a hedge as well. And so you can really get a situation where, and this is why blow off tops happens, where the shorts get squeezed, where a lot of that supply, which would then be demand, gets bled out uh, into this January time where people get more bullish and sentiment. People take more speculative risk and are cheering for 5,000. And then ball starts to go up. And you hit a kind of, and I've seen this a million times, not a million times, but enough times to count, where, where then you're in a setup for a situation where all of a sudden rug pull, the, uh, you know, those positive flows that everybody was like leaning on are gone. Now, uh, so Jan 17th is a day I'd highlight. Last thing I'll say, sorry, Ron, is, sure. is, but the most important new factor is people like me going out here and talking about this stuff.
right? So there's always a reflexivity. Yeah. So there's a knowledge is ball dampening. That's another thing I think it's important to note. The more that people understand these things, that's not what that's what that causes is more ball compression. It means we don't get the path where we go up. Instead, people are like, oh, well, that's coming. So I'm not going to, I'm going to keep that from happening, right? Or I'm going to be prepared for it. Mm. And then the market doesn't blow off and then ball doesn't go up. And then you know, the shorts don't get squeezed. And then, yes, we were supported in this window, which we knew, and maybe we incrementally went higher, but it wasn't enough to really unpin the market. And then the move isn't a crash and maybe it's just a small decline and maybe it's market down, ball down, but vol's decline becomes more likely under those scenarios. So the point here is this is the broad structure, right? You need to think about things in this light and you need to play probability and conditional probabilities as you go. And then let's say we did get some some more material weakness after all those flows go away in Jan. Are we talking about some sort of one to two month correction in the context of a broader bull market because it's an election year and there's going to be policy kind of... Now you're asking me to model the third move. <laughs> So I've given you what's crazy here is people don't appreciate we're modeling path and price and we've done, we're not always going to get it path and price, right? That would be crazy. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think yeah. what we've done is pretty crazy, which we have gotten path and price right for the last three moves. Mm. Um, uh, the point is people sit here and say, well, you said X three months. It's conditional, right? Mm. It's probability. It's a higher probability. That doesn't mean that's the path. Now, I'll tell you what I think might happen in that third move. Mm. But guess what? When we get past the second move, I'm going to have a completely different opinion. Because it's Bayesian, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's people don't understand probability. And that's part of the problem when you're talking kind of to the broad audience. But but if you're asking me to model the third move, if we get a blow off top, if we get a decline, right? First of all, the decline will be a function of how much that blow off top happens and what happens yeah. to ball and what happens to short squeeze, blah, blah, blah. But if we get that, which is less likely now because I'm out here telling the world about it and I'm, this isn't the first place I'm telling about, it, right? But assuming that does happen um, and we happen to get that move right, we've been right so far, we'll see if it continues. When that happens, as a function of how much ball supply gets split out, it'll be more dangerous. You're creating more, lifting something off the ground, right? We, we will have had an, an almost 20% rally or 16.8% rally, which presents potential energy. You'll have had short vol now getting bled out, right? You'll have less short interest, right? To, to for buyback into the next decline. So all those things could really drive an interesting move. Um, how big will it be? Uh, will again, depend on that second move. But if we get all those things and it's relatively big, how far can it go? If this wasn't an election year, I think it could be really nice. It's an election year. So the next question is now, what is the fiscal and monetary response to this move? And now we're talking about qualitative assessments. My guess is that the Fed will pivot under that circumstance. My guess, because it's an election year, my guess is that fiscal response and talk of recession will be, even if we're not really going into recession, we'll go through the roof in a 20% decline in markets or 15% decline in markets. That happens relatively quickly. Um, and you better believe the policy response will be significant. And the second markets catch wind of that, it's risk on again. So if that happens, that's what I would expect the next move to be a rally at some point. Maybe it's in March, maybe it's April, maybe it's in May. Again, these are all conditional. Mm -hmm. But if we do get a decline from in January or February, maybe it gets March because people's, because knowledge is all dampening and people broadly kind of whatever. But if we do, then the next move would be to be prepared for that response and, and to look at that response. The market will hold the Fed and uh, Treasury and fiscal, you know, the, the and government's feet to the fire. And the question is, how quickly will they respond? And my guess is, given it's a political year, that that response will be significant. Yeah, I, I can't really disagree with that. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, when, when and if we get that pullback is the question. I mean, you know, I was pretty sure we were going to rally in November. I just stopped participating in the rally a little bit too early, right? So now I was like, it's done a bit too much. Everyone's front run the year end rally. Actually, is there is there a bit of a path of a bit of a mini pain trade first before we keep going? But these yeah. flows just seem to be so strong. I mean, the price. I want to be clear. Could we get a? And this is what I said, by the way, 
when asked this question after the seven percent rally before or seven and a half before the last two and a half percent was you know has it gone too far and my answer was at that time listen you know and that was in a window of weakness i think you know are we going to get the pullback my answer was the flows are positive and yeah if people have front run it but the flows are significantly positive and if you're looking for a significant pullback to get back in this market good luck was my answer yeah. and um does that mean it can't digest and decline no it makes sense and what have we done we've digested and they, you know you know we yeah. had moments in the market but the, the answer here is time and price and everybody yeah. focuses on price but people lose track of time you're and right digestion you is just like a correction you can get a correction in time just like you can in price and especially in these windows where time is not a bear's friend because again those flows are coming mm -hmm. they're coming mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's so right. That would be my I've answer. seen that many a time in my career, right? Where the correction is just the sideways trading for a little bit. It's not, it doesn't actually go down in price, but like say it just unwinds the overbought condition via kind of going nowhere. And then, and then it continues its trend. So and why does that happen? Again, just to review, it's because people bought the stock. They got out in front of it. Now they got to take a profit. Who are they selling to? Well, if they can sell to Vaughn and Charm over time, then they get bled out and eventually market can go higher. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they need the positive flows to meet that that short, and that can happen over time. That can digestion can happen that way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's like if you get an exogenous catalyst, then people can not be willing to wait around for the Vanner and Charm buyers to take them out, and they all want to get out at the same time. That's when you get some real market impact. But right. if that but doesn't this happen, with structural positive flows, right, and vol compression, less likely. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. All right, mate, you've been very generous with your time. We've gone over uh, over an hour, uh, but it well, was a, a good, good conversation, right? You're asking the right questions. We're it's a great conversation. So, yeah, no, uh, I, I love to talking it. to you. It's uh, been a pleasure to do it again for the second time. And I'm pretty sure it's not going to be the last time we chat. So uh, absolutely. absolutely, thank you very much. And I hope the audience enjoyed it. I certainly did. And uh, I'll see you again sometime. Thanks. My pleasure, Ron. Thanks, Jim. Talk to you soon. Take care, everyone.